Take a Bible and open to John 15. The end of John 15 and the first few verses of John 16 is our passage this morning. We just sang about the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God, and those are important things to keep in mind when you read the verses that we're about to read and you think about the passage we're going to think about this morning. The heading in my Bible above these verses says, The Hatred of the World. We're going to talk about the hatred of the world, and it is important to remind ourselves and to proclaim to God and to proclaim to ourselves when we experience that hatred, that God is sovereign and that He's faithful even in the midst of what we experience in this life. Our reading plan this week took us from John 13 to 17, and this was one of those weeks in our New Testament reading plan where the five-chapter window fell in a uh, a good spot, uh, an exact window of what is a literary unit. John 13 to 17 is something called the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse, sometimes it's called the upper room discourse, was delivered in the context of Jesus' last Passover celebration. So this is the night before Jesus was crucified. He's meeting with the disciples. In the Gospel of John, we don't read about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. We do read this sermon, this discourse from Jesus. As they're in the upper room, it begins in John 13 where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And he says to them, I have served you and now you ought to serve each other. And then he continues in John 13, 14, 15, 16, all the way up to John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer where he prays for the disciples and he prays for future believers. And above all, he prays for his own glory and what's about to happen and what's about to transpire. So all of that is the upper room discourse. Our particular passage, the end of 15 and the beginning of 16, has a key word. And you've got to understand this key word if you want to make sense of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. That word is the word world. John, the author of this gospel, he usually used the term world almost always to refer to fallen humanity in rebellion against God and in opposition to God. So when you're reading through John and you come across that word world, he's not just talking about the earth. And he's not just talking about all the people who live on the earth as individuals or as a group. He's talking about all of the people who live on the earth who left to themselves apart from God's grace are opposed to God and are in rebellion against God. It's a word with a negative, the most negative connotation. So when you hear the word world, if the famous song, What a Wonderful World, from Louis Armstrong comes to mind, you got to purge that out of your brain, okay? I'm not going to do a Louis Armstrong impersonation this morning, but you can imagine his voice as I read the opening lines from this song. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And the song goes on and it talks about babies and it talks about love and it talks about all these things that give you the warm fuzzies. And all of that kind of thinking about the world 
Well, it may be true in a sense. There's beautiful things in the world. There's wonderful things we get to experience in the world. It's not what John is talking about when he talks about the world. He's talking about human beings in opposition to God and in rebellion against God. Now, one last thing up front. Just want to sort of throw this out there, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this as we move through the passage. But when you come to John 15, 22, and 24, this is the kind of place where it's very helpful to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. If you pull these two verses out and ignore everything else the Bible says about sin, about our relationship with God, you could end up in some strange places. So I'll just put these two verses on the screen. You can read them in your copy of the Scriptures. Jesus says in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. And then he says the same thing just two verses later in verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and the Father. If you ignore what the rest of the New Testament has to say about human beings, about the world, about sinners, you might look at those verses and say, how unfortunate for these otherwise good people How unfortunate for them that Jesus came and said these things and did these things. Because if they had not seen the miracles, if they had not heard his teaching, they would have been sinless, without sin. But when you back up and you think about what the Bible says in other places, you think about a passage like Genesis 6 that says, apart from God's grace, all people have hearts that are tuned wholly, completely, entirely away from God. Every intention of the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually apart from God's grace in our lives. You think about a passage like Romans 3 that says, all people have fallen short of God's glory. And no people seek for God or look for God or love God apart from His grace and His mercy. Then you come back to these verses that seem a little bit odd at first glance, and you say, okay, I think what John is telling us, I think what Jesus is saying is that these people did see miracles, and they did hear his preaching, and they did reject him, and they will be held responsible for that rejection. That sin and that rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ will not be overlooked. So we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Here's the big idea of our passage. Disciples of Jesus should expect to be hated by the world. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, your working expectation, your baseline assumption should be that the world will hate you. The world, fallen humanity in opposition to God, in defiance to God, in rebellion against God, will have hatred for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Take your copy of the Scriptures and let's read our passage. John 15, beginning in verse 18, and we'll go through the middle of verse 4 in chapter 16. Scripture says this, Jesus speaking, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, 
Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and both hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, our desire this morning is to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, to remember the words that he spoke. We think about this night where Jesus was with the disciples and it was his last chance to speak to them, to prepare them, to encourage them, to challenge them. We think about these words where Jesus is so honest about the world and what we can expect from the world and how the world feels about Jesus. Lord, these are not easy things to hear. But they're things that the Lord Jesus wanted his people to hear. So this morning we ask that you would give us ears to hear these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you read that passage, it's very clear that Jesus, in this section of the upper room discourse, the farewell discourse, he's talking to the disciples about the world. And I'll just put a few numbers up on the screen for you to think about as you think about this particular passage. In verse 18 and 19, Jesus uses the word world six times. The world, the world, the world, the world, the world. And then in the rest of the passage that we read, he doesn't talk about the world, but he uses pronouns that refer back to the world, to this mass of fallen humanity and rebellion against God. There's 18 of them, they, them, their, whoever, over and over and over again. If you like to make notes in your Bible, these might be words that you want to circle to help you understand this particular section. Jesus is talking about the world and what we can expect from the world as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question we want to ask and answer this morning is very simple. What does John, who wrote this account, want us to know about the world? He's recording the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he want us to take away? What does Jesus want us to take away in terms of thinking about the world? Here's the first thing that the Lord Jesus and the, the, the author of this gospel, John, would have us to know. The world hated 
and hates Jesus because he is otherworldly. Hated when he was on the earth. Hates today because the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no change in him. In the incarnation, the world hated him. And even today, the world hates him. If you've been reading the Gospel of John, this should not surprise you. You shouldn't get to John 15 and say, well, that's strange. Well, that's odd. Everybody seemed to be so friendly with Jesus. By the time you get to John 8, there's been incredible controversy and conflict with Jesus. They have tried to kill Jesus multiple times at this point in in his life. And if you just take your Bible, flip back to John chapter 1. I told you this so regularly when we went through the Gospel of John a few months back. I've told you this several times over the last few weeks. Virtually everything in the Gospel of John is found in John's prologue in seed form. Jesus is otherworldly. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He is not part of of the world. He's the creator of all that exists. That's what we're singing about when we sang earlier about God's holiness. He's not like us. He's not like anything in creation. He's separate. He's set apart. He's distinct. He's one of a kind. He's holy. He's otherworldly. Verse 9, John 1. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, his own people did not receive him. This is not just true of the Jews in the first century. This is true of the world. Humanity in opposition to God, in defiance against God, in rebellion against God, They hate the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, even as I say that to you, and you fill in the blanks on your outline so dutifully, I acknowledge that in the United States of America, where we live, Jesus polls very well. Really, really good. Ten years ago, there was a public opinion survey done. The group that did the survey... Is called public policy polling. And they contacted Americans and they said, we're doing a survey. We're going to say a name and we want you to give us thumbs up or thumbs down. Favorable, unfavorable. Pretty simple, right? We throw a name out there and you say yay or nay. I like them or I don't like them. Here's some of the top results from the survey. Gandhi. 64%. Not bad for a dead Indian guy in the United States of America. There's a lot of politicians that would go a long ways to say, I'd like a 64% approval rating. Sounds pretty good. Thumbs up. Moving up the scale. Santa Claus. Logged in just above Gandhi. 67%. I don't know. Seems pretty low to me. 67%. Somebody got coal in their stocking and said, I'm out. Next, MLK, 74%. He's got a holiday. We like holidays in the United States. We get a day off work. 
Thumbs up for MLK. We like MLK. Mother Teresa. We know she helped a lot of people. 83%. That's pretty high. Who's next? Jesus. 90%. Thumbs up. Now you're looking at the screen and you're saying, wait a minute, there's people higher than Jesus? Yeah, they've got two more. Next above Jesus, Abe Lincoln. 91%. Now before she puts the last name up, I just want you to think. Think who it is. Who would be above Jesus? Who would be above Abe Lincoln among Americans? And the answer is yourself. If that's not an American list, I don't know what is. 93% for yourself. 90% for Jesus is pretty good. 9 out of 10. Can you imagine a politician in our day and age who had a 90% approval rating? It's unthinkable. So you look at that polling and you say, Preacher, what you're saying in John doesn't seem to line up with the polls and how do we sort this out? And what I would say to you is, I could give you survey after survey, poll after poll, research upon research that shows that 90% has absolutely no idea what the Bible has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. They know the name. And in their brain... What they think of when they think about Jesus is a watered-down version of what the New Testament presents. It's a tame, domesticated version of what the New Testament presents. And when you start talking about the Lord Jesus Christ telling people to repent of their sin... You start talking about the Lord Jesus Christ saying things to religious people like he says in the Gospel of John. You start talking about the Lord Jesus Christ saying to his followers, the world hates me and if you follow me they'll hate you too. That 90% drops. Not quite as favorable. So you take all the polls, all the surveys you want. You can listen to what the Lord Jesus says in the Gospel of John chapter 15, the world hated him and hates him because he's otherworldly. Second, John would have us know this. Hating Jesus is evidence that a person does not know God the Father. If you hate and oppose and you stand in rebellion to the Lord Jesus Christ, according to what we just read, you do not know the Father. So look at verse 21. I just want you to see it again. These things they will do to you on account of my name, Jesus said, because they do not know him who sent me. If you've read through the Gospel of John, you know that the Son was sent by the Father. Jesus says, the reason they will hate you is because they don't know the Father. Look at verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. That's strong language. Jesus is saying, you cannot claim to believe in, love, trust in, follow God if you reject Him. It's pretty black and white. 
Look what he says in verse 3. He says, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. It's an unpopular truth. Jesus is saying you cannot have a relationship with the one true God if you do not come to the one true God through Jesus, through the Messiah, through the Christ. It's what theologians call the exclusivity of the gospel. And the question is, how many ways are there for a person to be made right with God? There's lots of proposed ways for people to be made right with God out there on the religious landscape. And Jesus says you can throw all of them in the trash. There is only one way that you can have a relationship with the Father. It's by knowing the one whom he sent, Jesus, the Son. That's not a popular truth. The world hates that idea. The world hates that idea. If you leave the United States and you grow maybe overseas, you cross a border, you go to a different culture. Almost anywhere you go in the world, you will find spiritual, religious people. Everywhere. People doing spiritual things, people doing religious things, and if you ask those people, do you believe that there's someone up there, out there, here? Is there a higher power? Is there a divine being? Virtually all of them will say, yes, we do, and we have a way to worship, or we have a way to make things right, or we have a way to communicate. And when you say to them, you cannot know the true God, the one true God, unless you know His Son, Jesus Christ, people will be angry with that idea. You and I live in a postmodern culture where we're told, over and over and over again, there is no absolute truth. No one person can have a corner on the market of truth. It's all up for grabs. It's all debatable. It's all arguable. You cannot claim to know the only true way to God. And in that culture that you and I live in today, if you stand up and with confidence you say, Jesus Christ is the only way that you can know God and have a right relationship with the Father, people will hate that. They'll hate it. Even here in Odessa, Texas, you say, man, that sounds like you're talking about New York. That sounds like California. That sounds like Oregon or New Hampshire. Listen, right here in Odessa, Texas, do you know how many times I talk to a person and they say something to me to the effect of, I have always believed in God? No, you haven't. That's not true. People say, oh, I've gone to church all of my life. I've always believed there's a God. I, I've never not believed that. According to the Bible, there was a time when you did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you were alienated from the Father. 2,000 years ago, this is what Jesus said to the most religious people on the planet the descendants of Abraham. How many times, if you've read through John, how many times did they argue about whether or not they were sons of Abraham? We're Abraham's sons. We know God. God spoke to Abraham. We're part of his family, and we know him. And Jesus looked at them, and he said, you're children of the devil. 
There's only one way that you can know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way that you can know the Father. Thirdly, believers should, be, uh, should expect, excuse me, believers should expect to be hated like Jesus was hated because we are chosen servants. And if your Bible's open, you can look at verse 19 and 20. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, how is it that we disciples are not of the world? Is it because we're better? Is it because we're smarter? Is it because we're more in tune with spiritual things? Is it because we haven't sinned quite as much as our neighbors? Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus says, you're not part of the world. I've chosen you out of the world. I've pulled you out of the world. And you are my servant, and as a servant, you can expect to be treated just like the master was treated. And as Jesus describes that treatment, he talks about four levels of what you might call persecution. Let's just think about these quickly. First of all, there's hatred. He says, they hated me, they'll hate you. The Greek word here describes strong pleasure, strong feelings of dislike, displeasure, and even disgust. Dislike displeasure, and disgust. I promise you, there are people in the world who if they knew that you attended a Southern Baptist church, that you believed this book was true, that you believe God gets to define marriage, that you believe there's only one way a person can be saved, that you believe all people must repent of their sins, they would dislike you. They would feel displeasure toward you. They would feel disgust toward you. Secondly, persecution. Persecution. There's a, a Greek scholar named A.T. Robertson who describes this word with the phrase, to chase like a wild beast. That word persecution. It's someone or something literally being hunted down. A.T. Robertson lived before Animal Planet, but just think Shark Week. Think the great white moving through the ocean looking for that cute, fat seal. He is chasing it down with intensity. Think about the lion running across the plain chasing down that gazelle. That's the idea of this word. Hatred, persecution, thirdly, excommunication. When Jesus said these words, he said they will kick you out of the synagogues. They will officially take action to remove you from the religious assembly. Shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, Christians began to meet in churches, as churches. So what we can expect if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that there will be religious bodies 
that will look at those who are faithful to Jesus and they will remove them officially from fellowship because they are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's happening in denominations in the United States of America even as we speak. And for whatever it's worth, I just want to make the note that even secular people practice excommunication. Secular people don't meet in churches. They don't have church membership roles to tally. But they will excommunicate those who fall out of favor with them. They will cancel them. They will silence them. That is a secular version of excommunication. Lastly, murder. Or you could say martyrdom. Jesus says, for some of you in some places, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that they're offering service to God. It doesn't take long for this to happen in the Bible. You think about Stephen in the book of Acts. A group of religious people killed him because he was faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. In early church history, there were men like Polycarp, arrested, threatened with their life, told to deny Jesus. They refused. They were put to death. On the eve of the Protestant Reformation, there were men like John Huss who stood up for the truthfulness of God's Word, who began to teach the way of salvation as the Bible describes it. They were burned at the stake. You think about Stalin's gulags in the Soviet Union. You think about the the People's Communist Party in China and their re-education camps. You think about believers in places in North Africa where the average life expectancy for a new convert to the Lord Jesus Christ is measured in days. Hatred, persecution, excommunication, murder. Believers should be expected, should expect to be hated like Jesus was hated because we are chosen servants. In verse 25, Jesus says this is the fulfillment of Scripture. He quotes two psalms, both of them written by David. And what he's saying is David, the king, suffered some of these things. And it was a foreshadowing. It was a preview of the true king of Israel who would suffer these same things. And it was a preview. It was a foreshadowing of what the followers of the true king of Israel can expect. Now that's quite a recruitment pitch, isn't it? Jesus is saying to the people who are closest to him, here's what it's going to be like to follow me. And you're looking in the footnotes saying, where's the money part? Where's the the wealthy part? I thought I I heard a guy on TV say we were going to all have lots of money. And where's the part about I'm never going to get sick and bad things aren't going to happen to me? Where's that part? Where's the part where Jesus says, Nothing is going to happen to me that I won't be able to handle on my own strength. Isn't that in here somewhere? Because this sounds pretty rough. Can you imagine the recruitment pitch? Come join our company. Come join our team. Come join our club, our civic organization. Come join our church. Once you join, the world will hate you. And they might persecute you. And you might get excommunicated, and I hate to tell you, but they might kill you. 
Here's where you sign up. Right here. Jesus wants his people to count the cost and to understand what it means to be a chosen servant, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's think about one last question as we close. How do we respond to all of that? That's what we can expect from the world. What do we do in response? Let me tell you three things we must not do and two things we must do. First of all, believers must not love the world. Must not love the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, I'll put it on the screen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is a way to escape the hatred of the world, and that's just to stay in the world and to be of the world and to be worldly and to love the things in the world. If you do that, all this hatred, persecution, excommunication, you can just forget about all that stuff. Just go along with the world. Go with the flow wherever you live, whenever you live. You don't have to worry about all this stuff. But John says, you do need to understand that if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. This is a danger not just for Christians but for churches. Let me just try to lay out two ways this happens. Churches falling in love with the world. Our culture is dominated by consumerism and celebrity. We're a consumer culture and we're a celebrity culture. And there are a lot of churches that fall in love with that way of thinking. They fall in love with the idea that church is a product. They fall in love with the idea that church leaders are supposed to be celebrities. They just fall in love with the way the world operates. And those churches are all over the place. They exist simply to provide a product that people want and to elevate and celebrate personalities. It's a bad way to do church. It is a worldly way to do church. And just being really honest, those churches tend to have the mindset that we want to be just as cool as the world. They're never as cool as the world. They always look like that 50-year-old dad trying to squeeze into skinny jeans. Just stick with your boot cuts. It's okay. It's a worldly way to do church. It doesn't work. We live in a culture, let me give you another example of how this plays out. We live in a culture that is postmodern, largely, and that is highly sexualized. And you understand what I'm talking about. And there are churches that fall in love with the worldview of the world. And these churches say, we don't want to stop talking about Jesus, but we also want to be able to affirm everything that the world affirms. And we want to do both of those things. We want to hold both of those things together. We, we want to hang on to Jesus. We don't want to get rid of him. But we also want to affirm and celebrate all the things that the world affirms and the world celebrates. And you can't do it. 
You simply can't do it. When you buy into the worldview of the culture around you, the love of the Father is not in you. Is not in you. So number one, believers must not love the world. Secondly, believers must not hate the world. How's that for a number two? Can't love the world. Can't hate the world. Why? Well, there's a verse in the Gospel of John, John 3.16, and it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him will not perish, but they'll have everlasting life, eternal life. You can't love the world, but you also can't hate the world. I think for a lot of Christians, this is a temptation right now because the world is ultra spun up and crazy at the moment. And the tendency is to turn the news on and say, the world has lost its mind, and we got to get out of here. we got to build walls. we got to make a compound. we got to get out. They're going to get to us. We just, we're going to move to the wilderness. Let's stop it. You know what we're saying? What people are saying when they say that is, let's be Amish. That's what the Amish people tried to do. They looked around at the world a long time ago, and they said, we don't want anything to do with that, so we're leaving. And we're just going to be here. And we're going to do our own thing. That's not an option for a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, because God had love for the world. He didn't have to love the world. He wasn't obligated to love the world. But in His kindness and His grace and His mercy, He loved the world, and He provided a way for the world to become part of His family. You and I understand how that works. It doesn't work when we hole up in a compound. It works when we go out not loving the world, but sharing truth with the world. Can't love the world. You can't hate the world. Thirdly, this is really important. Believers must not needlessly provoke the hatred of the world. And I just draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4, the apostle talks about suffering. He says Christians should expect to suffer. But he throws a verse in, 1 Peter 4 verse 15, and he says, Don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a meddler. And maybe just by extension we would say, or because you're a jerk. You and I don't get to leave this place and go out into the world and just be mean to people and hateful to people. And then when they're hateful back to us, we say, Jesus said you were going to do that. Jesus knew how hateful you'd be. Sometimes you're going to experience the hatred of the world. But sometimes you and I experience the hatred of the world because we're mean people. And that ought not be true of us. Do not suffer as a meddler. Suffer as a Christian. Thirdly, what should we do? Excuse me, fourthly, what should we do? Believers must endure the hatred of the world. It's right there in chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus said, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. I'm telling you up front what to expect. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 1. Do not let the hatred of the world keep you from the love of God. The world will hate you. Do not let that drive you away from God's love. He does not want us to fall away. You go back to that list of four things that we filled in and you say, well, 
That's a big ask. It is a big ask. But Jesus promised help. That's the last thing that you need to see in this passage. Believers must depend on the Holy Spirit. In verse 26, he's called the helper, the comforter. In verse 27, he's called the spirit of truth. When you experience the hatred of the world, you don't experience it on your own. There's a helper. There's a comforter who's with you. And when you go out with good news of Jesus Christ to the world, you don't go out on your own power, with your own abilities. You go out with a helper, the spirit of truth. And I just want you to understand, this is really good news. It's really good news that you don't have to endure the hatred of the world on your own resources. You have a helper. You have God with you in the person of the Holy Spirit to comfort you. And when we go out... When we preach sermons, when we teach Sunday school lessons, when we share Bible stories at VBS, when we send teams to the mission center to serve, when we send teams to Kenya to serve, when we go out to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever thought about the futility of what we're doing? Especially in light of this passage, Jesus says, it's very simple, the world hates Jesus, the world hates followers of Jesus. And Jesus sends his followers into the world to be witnesses about him. How's that going to turn out? They hate him. They hate us. The true light came and his own people wanted nothing to do with him. How in the world are we going to convince anybody that what we believe about Jesus is actually good news and not bad news? The answer to that question is we're not. I can't convince a single person. Neither can you. But we have a helper. We have the spirit of truth. And if you read in this section, John 16, if you keep going in the very next verses in verse 4 and following, Jesus says, I'm going to send the helper and he is going to convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So your job is to go out and be a witness about the good news to the world. The world that hates Jesus, the world that hates you. And as you go out, you rely on the helper, the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, to convict people and to convince people of the truth. This passage is a beautiful Trinitarian description of why we have hope. When you think about this passage in the context of the Gospel of John, the Father loved an unlovable world. And He sent the Son to die on a cross for our sins that we might be forgiven. And even though we want nothing to do with that good news, He goes all the way to send the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, to open our eyes, to unplug our ears, to unstiffen our necks, to give us a new heart that we might love the Lord Jesus Christ. That gives us hope. It's a passage about hope. It's a passage that's honest about what to expect in the world. But ultimately, it's a hopeful passage about what the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is doing to save sinners like us.